This is Joel Harden, and you're listening to Troublemaker Radio. Troublemaker Radio, as always, is broadcasting to you from Ottawa, which sits on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin peoples. This episode, we're going to be talking about racism. We're going to be talking about a global movement that has taken root since the horrific events of May 25th, 2020, when George Floyd was murdered in police custody, and that heinous eight minutes and 48 seconds was caught live and broadcast around the world. And many folks, particularly, I'm looking at you, fellow white folks, got a glimpse of the violence that has often been part of the lives of many of our black, brown, and indigenous neighbors and other people of color. We have been having a global awakening on this conversation. The Black Lives Matter movement has been mobilizing for years, but something has changed. Something has demonstrably changed. A defund the police movement has emerged. In the city of Minneapolis, it has meant that the police department itself is being defunded, and those resources are going to be allocated into ensuring people in mental health crisis or in any form of crisis are given the supportive care they need in their greatest moment of need. Here in Ottawa, we are not immune to this discussion, as you will find out on this podcast. I encourage listeners to look up the names of Vincent Gardner, Wayne Johnson, Terry Norris, Greg Ritchie, and Abdurrahman Abdi, all of whom have died in police custody, all of whom have died in violent interactions with police here in the city of Ottawa. We, people who live here, have to have an urgent conversation. And I have to say, I have been absolutely struck by how our city has been also a fulcrum of protest and a fulcrum of organizing. On June 5th, people took over the House of Commons grounds. There were tens of thousands of people mobilizing to acknowledge that what happened to George Floyd, what happened to Abdurrahman Abdi, what happened to Greg Ritchie, what has happened to so many of our neighbors can never happen again. And on June 20th, we mobilized again from the downtown Ottawa police station at the corner of Catherine and Elgin Street, all the way up to City Hall. And we demanded that the police union chief, Matt Scoff, resign for the misogynist remarks he has been recorded to have made against one of the leaders of the Justice for Abdurrahman movement. We saw people there who are fed up, justifiably so. And on June 23rd, the police services board here in Ottawa heard from community group after community group, saying that the amount of money we put into aggressive police interventions in our community has to stop. We need to reallocate those resources to more supportive, enabling, and caring interventions when our neighbors need those interventions. Not one more person should die in police custody for the crime of being in crisis. Crime in quotation marks, I might say. So we have a number of conversations for you today that will take you to the ground of the struggle for racial justice. Every time we 
air an episode on Troublemaker Radio. Our goal is not to have you just listen to me. We want you to listen to the changemakers on the ground. That's what we do in our MPP office. We share our resources. We share the mic. The first person I want you to listen to is Dahabo Ahmed Omar. Dahabo is one of the founders of the Justice for Abdurrahman Coalition. It formed four years ago in the aftermath of the horrific death of Abdurrahman Abdi. My friend MPP Laura May Lindo, who is the chair of the Ontario NDP Black Caucus and the MPP for Kitchener Centre, had a conversation with Dahabo, and we explored many dimensions of the struggle for justice for Black, Brown, Indigenous, and other people of colour. I know you'll find it revelatory. I certainly did. Thanks for listening. Over to Dahabo. Hello, everybody. This is uh, this is a wonderful time to be having a conversation about a wrenching subject. My name is Joel Harden. I'm the member of provincial parliament for Ottawa Centre, and I am so honoured to be joined by two amazing, amazing leaders on the fight for racial justice, the fight against white supremacy. Uh, it is an honour to welcome my friend Laura May Lindo, MPP for Kitchener Centre and chair of the ONDP Black Caucus. Hello, Laura May. Hello. <laughs> It is also wonderful to be uh, with Dahaba Ahmed Omar, a great friend, uh, one of the founders of the Justice for Abdurrahman Coalition. Thank you so much, Dahaba, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Dahaba, you are known and beloved in this city for being one of the founders of the Justice for Abdurrahman Coalition, among many other things you do. Um, and for people who aren't aware of Abdurrahman's story, um, I don't want to provide you with the obligation of having to go through the whole gamut of the story. It, it, it has been one of the more catalyzing stories, awful, tragic stories um, in this country. But this, this has been a four-year project for justice. This has been a four-year project for justice. The fourth year anniversary is coming up very soon. And I'm wondering, you know, as, as I asked Laura May, how are you seeing this, this context unfolding as this kind of work for justice continues? And what I heard Laura May saying loud and clear was you're getting inundated from appeals, not only from racialized communities, but from a big swath of your community in Kitchener Center around the province of Ontario for action. We just, you and I were just part of this amazing march that JFA and other friends organized in our city, um, right? You know, we started at the police station on Elgin Street. We ended up in front of City Hall. Um, I'm wondering if planning that, getting involved in that, making the case for justice for the Abdi family, uh, felt any different last week than the work has felt in a number of years. But what, what do you think? Um, so, well, first of all, for those of you that don't know what happened to Abdurrahman Abdi, uh, you know, I think it's important to say his name and, and always tell his story. Okay. Um, so Abdi is Abdi is a 37, uh, was a 37 year old uh, young man with mental health challenges and um, went to Bridgehead, uh, a coffee shop that he would go to almost every morning um, and he would take walks um, and go get coffee. And that morning um, they called the police on him. Um, the police arrived. Um, he 
ran home. You know, he was scared and was trying to get home and runs to his building uh, on Hilda and gets the police catch up to him um, and they beat him to death. Um, and when we, when we think about George Floyd and eight minutes and 46 seconds, um, you know, the video of Abdurrahman is a little over 28 minutes. Uh, and I don't urge anybody to go watch it, but, you know, when we talk about, it doesn't matter how long the video is. It doesn't matter if there are witnesses. It doesn't matter if there are people who are bearing witness to um, anti-Black racism. We saw yesterday in DeFonte Miller's case that the five hours of how many witnesses that the judge spoke about, that he believed that, you know, spoke out against what happened to DeFonte and still, and still that decision was, was, was rendered. You know, we came together very quickly last night, JFA team, and, you know, for the first 10 minutes, none of us were really speaking because we realized that this is probably what's going to happen with this officer in Ottawa. He was charged with aggravated assault. He was charged with um, assault with a weapon and manslaughter. manslaughter. And so there are three very serious charges. Um, But still, you know, we were realizing that when we talk about systemic racism, and I, I try to explain to people as simply as I possibly can, it's not about bad apples. It's not about individuals. It's not about that. You can have an institution that has millions of employees and none of them would be racist and still the system would deliver its programs and services in a, disc- in a discriminatory and disproportionate way. And that is what systemic racism is. It's yeah. not about the people. It's yeah. literally about the way that this foundation was created in the way that the structures were made. They weren't made for us. And that's what the judge was telling us yesterday. And I urge everybody to go actually read the, 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 the verdict, it's 62 pages, but it's, it's important to read it because you literally see the structural racism in every single paragraph in that verdict. You see the fact that the system will never, in the way that it is now, will never respond to our communities. And so Abdurrahman is a prime example of that. We have individuals, I mean, the responsibility of what happened to Abdurrahman starts at the very top when that call was made to police against a black man. It starts right there. It starts with what was said on that 911 call, what was said when the police arrived, what was said when the police was outside with Abdurrahman and pushing him against the wall, what was said to to the police as they were running after him, what was said to the police while they were there in front of Abdurrahman beating him to a pole. Like systemic racism, it's in the entire system. We're not just talking about policing. We're talking about coffee shops. <laughs> We're yeah. talking about mental health institutions. We're talking about healthcare generally. We're talking about the education system. When we talk about the, the, the school to prison pipeline, that's literally what it is, is that there is a system that's been created to um, take individuals from our community, criminalize them, and then enslave them. Because going to prison is just that. It's enslavement. It's just, there's a different word for it now. You know, I don't think that we're living in a different era than 50 years ago. I think there's just, it just looks prettier on the outside. It just looks, you know, like it's been rushed up. But the reality is that we're now faced with a trial that's starting up in a couple of weeks. And we're ready for 
an acquittal. That's literally what we're getting ready for. Even though there were 26 witnesses, there was a 28 minute video. There were autopsy photos that would, you know, when you see the video, you only get to see the outside of what happened to Abdurrahman. But if any of you have ever attended court for any case and you see autopsy reports and photos, you get to see what happened to the person on the inside and how their bodies were destroyed, destroyed. And if we ever saw any photos of, you know, we saw a few photos of Defonte, but I'm sure there are others where you can actually see the inside of his eye and the impact of anti-Black racism. It's literally killing us. When we say this, we actually mean that. And so, you know, we, we, we're, we're gearing up to deconfining, right? Um, but people don't feel safe going back onto the streets. They don't. They don't feel safe at home. First of all, during this entire pandemic, we're facing two different pandemics right now, as you all yes. know, COVID-19 and anti-Black racism. Mm. And the reality is, and I say this all the time, is that our Blackness is illegal. We are illegal in this country. They just don't tell us that we are, but they treat us as if we are. And so if this country is going to do what needs to be done and the right thing, they're going to, like Laura May said, is to center us and legalize our blackness in every single institution. That is the only way that we are able, we're going to be able to have somewhat of a frame of equity. I mean, to me, equity and, and, and a fair society is going to take a very long time. But for us to even scratch the surface, you're going to have to center any way that you're going to move from now on, any reframing of any organization, which I don't even believe in reform right now. My mind is really just, I'm at a point right now, I'm like dismantled the bloody thing. The entire thing is broken. The entire thing is, is shit. Sorry for my language, No, but it's not, it's not going to work. And so we have to stop kidding ourselves. And, you know, I'm usually optimistic, but I think I'm just angry these days, especially after yesterday. Um, and when he got interviewed, I don't know if you guys saw Defonte's interview. No, I didn't. He was so humble. And he said, you know, I'm glad the judge could see that something worse happened. I'm glad the judge could see that I was running for my life. You know, I'm glad that he even convicted him of assault because I think he realized that he wasn't getting that getting that much was joy. Just that much was joy. And that's the sad part is that even the bare minimum right now is what people are happy about, but it's not enough and it will never be enough. And I think that's the conversation that we need to have now is I don't even think we want to ask ourselves, should we, or should we not dismantle to me? It is we're dismantling. Now, how are we going to recreate in a way that's going to be inclusive and centered around uh, black and indigenous people? That's the conversation. Now I hate being asked, like, what do you think we should do? Well, get rid of the entire thing. Right. Get rid of it. Completely. I mean, uh, I uh, I watched here in Laura May. Uh, you may have seen the comments of our new police chief, uh, Peter Slowly, a black man. He was in the running for chief of police in Toronto. Didn't get that position, but he got the position here. And I have talked to a number of constituents who were hopeful that that meant potential improvement here at home. But I did watch with interest his presentation earlier this week to the police services committee in Ottawa, where. He likened this to a bad apples problem, and I, I don't know about both of you, but I, I can't forget the you know the scriptural passage my grandmother taught me. You know the notion of you will you will know the tree by the fruit that it bears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know you the will know the rotten. tree. 
<laughs> you will know the tree by the fruit that it bears. Mm-hmm. And th- thank you to Habo for talking about Abdurrahman's story. And I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't also mention Greg Ritchie, who was killed in the city in uh, January 2018, an Ojibwe man in the parking lot. Um, reports vary, but shot at close range as much as 11 times. Uh, he was on his way to get medications. Uh, he lived with trauma. He uh, he had an encounter with police who claimed he was armed. There was an SIU investigation who claimed that this this handmade um, indigenous uh, acts that he made it is that's it's measured. If you if you Google, folks who are watching this conversation, if you Google Greg's name, some journalists here in Ottawa, to the credit, have done some investigation and they've produced some of the actual pieces of evidence from the SEIU, SIU investigation. But it's essentially, the SEIU report suggested that this implement that Greg himself had handmade was serious enough to warrant being shot at close range as much as 11 times. And uh, of, of the many moments that uh, I saw in the recent March to Habo, where we ended up in front of City Hall, one of the most powerful moments for me was when the family of Greg Ritchie produced a statement of solidarity that was read out by a member of the JFA coalition and made that recognition that, you know, we, we have a deep seated problem here. And I don't know about you, but I'm really troubled with this language of bad apples. And Mm -hmm. there there has been a global movement called defund the police. There has been a global movement asking for us to have transformational change, whatever, whatever language we want to use, but reallocating money from criminalizing and policing lives particularly Black, Indigenous, racialized lives, taking the money that we seem to have more than enough in capacity for year upon year and investing that, as Laura May just said, in in Black, racialized, actually concrete investments. Um, I'm wondering, you know, here in our city, Dahabo, what, what could that look like if we had a transformational approach? What could that look like? How could it work? I'm also thinking of Obi Afedi, who is walking in Roy... Uh, Thompson Park, not long ago. I'm sorry if if this is is uh, no, no. We we, I mean, we need to talk about it. Um, I'm 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 a father. Um, I, I walk with our children all the time. But I guarantee you, and I'm sorry if members of the media establishment don't like politicians saying these sort of things. But I guarantee you, if in these days I was walking with either one of my children in any park in the city of Ottawa, I would not be chased by a bylaw officer, tackled and punched in the face, charged, charged. Fine. I think that Dahab was the fine as much as $2,000. It is. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to answer your question. I just, I, I want to mention this because I think it's important. Sure. Um, with, the, with the Greg Ritchie situation, his yeah. family um, were, were in their house, in the balcony, sort of watching him. Because, you know, um, he did have mental health issues and so did Abdurrahman. Like I'm making, I, I, I want to make this point because I think it's important that the similarities between these, because we're seeing the same thing happen over and over again. Um, you know, Abdurrahman's mom told, told us very early on that that morning when he was leaving, something shook in her and she's like, maybe I should go with him. Mm. You know, but she also knew that, you know, he he was, you know, a 37-year-old man. He wanted his independence and be able to have some, you know, be self-sufficient and do these things. So she said, you know what, I, I will I will let him go and, and do that. And and Greg Richie's family said the same thing in an interview. They were thinking to themselves, should I, like, maybe I should go walk with him. You know what, no, he's okay. He wants to do this. 
let him let, let's let him do that and and they were watching they were watching this happen from their balcony and at first they didn't realize that it was Greg they didn't realize that it was their son they only realized later on that it was and so I'm making that point to say that we can't deconfine like we can our families people from our community don't want our people to go out my mom calls me every single night at nine o'clock and she'll say Dehaba, are you home did you lock the door I'm 32 years old okay I'm, she's not talking to a 15 year old and she'll ask me these things and I'm I'm fully capable you know but still there's this fear that's there for our lives no matter who we are and and we keep seeing these families who have this sense of regret and 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 response as if it was their fault as if it was that's how broken the system is that our people are thinking I should have been able to protect them and these are the people that are supposedly supposed to be protecting and serving us and so I wanted to make that point because I think there's so many similarities in our and George Floyd crying out to his dead mother two years ago she had died and I mean it's this it continues to play in my mind because it's Dahaba, we've lost your volume. You're, you're muted. There you go. You stepped up. Uh, somehow it muted. There you there go. We go. Oh, I, okay. I, I, I muted myself. I apologize. Um, so in terms of what we can do, um, you know the comments that were made on that police board meeting? I was driving to my sister's house, and I'm on the highway going 120 and I'm screaming on top of my lungs going, are you kidding me? We're talking about bad apples. We're talking about bad apples. And we, there's so many individuals that have died at the hands of police. From, I think there was a report that was done by CBC from 2000 to 2017. They had reported 461 cases of black individuals that died at the hands of police or were harmed at the hands of police. And only 17 were ever charged or two, and two convicted. I mean, those are just some rough stats because they're also not collecting this data, which is a whole other conversation around this. Um, but we're talking about bad apples, but this continues. So then, so then what you're doing is your system is hiring nothing but bad apples. Where did, what's the root of it all, ultimately? It's the tree. You're right. The, the, the bloody thing, the bloody tree in itself is rotten. And we keep talking about this as if it's new, but it's not new. Um, and so if you ask me what needs to be done is that we don't need police I don't know when we've ever needed police. I don't know what's this idea around enforcement. To me, it's about safety. It's about well-being. It's about security. It's about ensuring that there are no, we don't get to a place where we are interacting with police, but that we give people a safe home. We give them good jobs. We allow them to have education because you're right. right people pushed out. We're talking about suspension and expulsion rates being at a, extremely high rate right now for black and indigenous kids that's because they they're the, the system is suspending them or expelling them for the most menial of things yes and so before we even get to talking about like what do we need to do for police first of all you will never need police if all the other systems and all the other social services were functioning at the rate that they need to if you are dealing with homelessness you're dealing with housing you're dealing with um substance abuse mental health issues education Unemployment rate for black women is at 11%. That's twice the population rate. That's insane. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about these things, you know, defund the police, 
yes, defunding, the idea behind defunding, as I understand it, it's a step towards abolishing the police. But to be honest, we do not need police. The rate, like the auto police chief said this in an interview, he said 90% of the cases, incidents and calls we get have to do with mental health. Yeah. And therefore, why do you carrying a gun in a situation like that? The state, the, 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 um, Ijaz Shudri who died in uh, GTA and they went through his balcony to kill him. Like imagine taking a ladder, getting up the ladder, going into the balcony, opening the door and shooting. Like how, that's not a bad apple. They've been taught to do this. They've been taught to shoot and kill and beat and harass. And so we, we have to dismantle it. And honestly, like I love to hear Laura's ideas on this, but I think that we, we cannot just talk about policing as a one thing the entire system on its as a whole is broken. And again, I don't think we need policing. I think that if we dealt with everything else, there'll be so little interaction with police and real policing, real community safety is when you never need to fire, when you never need to get your gun. And this is the same thing I say about doctors. You know, when you go to the hospital and you're getting checked out and they're doing all these tests, they will do everything and anything not to go through surgery because they know how traumatic surgery is for our body. They never want to cut. They will only cut when it's absolutely necessary and dire. My uncle just passed two weeks ago. I'm sorry. He got rest his soul. And, and it's because he, he went to the hospital with a heart. Con- like he was feeling, you know, some chest pain. He was fine. He's been healthy his entire life. Um, and very quickly they went in and took him into surgery and he died in surgery. But they told us we absolutely needed to do the surgery. And I understood that because, you know, this is what doctors are taught. They go to school for almost eight to 10 years. What do you got to do to be a cop? I could be a cop today. I just got to pass a couple of physical tests and I'll be good. But am I, am I the right person to be a cop? Absolutely not. Can I handle it? Can, do I know what it means to shoot and kill? Do, it's just, there's a lot um, in my mind and I'm probably saying a lot, but ultimately I think what I'm saying is that the system is so broken that if we just fix everything else, then we will not be, we would not, need the police. So absolutely defund the police. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises a Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill 
is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. This is Joel Harden. You are listening to Troublemaker Radio. I hope you enjoyed that conversation we had with Tahabo Ahmed Omar. I hope you were able to soak in a lot of what she was trying to impress upon us about the lived experience of Black, Indigenous, and people of color here in the city of Ottawa and how we need to do far better in tackling the roots of these problems. On a related note, next, we are going to turn to a conversation I had recently with Tasia Brown. Tasia Brown has been a leader in our city, fighting against the weaponization of 911 against Black, Indigenous, and people of color. This is not just an Amy Cooper story, if folks are familiar with that, the way in which Amy Cooper, a Canadian living in New York, attempted to weaponize 911 against a Black man she encountered in the park, who was doing nothing but birding. Well, guess what? That Canadian tradition embodied in Amy Cooper has happened here, and it has to stop. Tasia Brown is someone who needs your attention. Over to her. All right, I think we're here. Tasia, can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right, well, look, thank you so much for, for joining me. And I was wondering for our listeners if you could relate to them, as you did to me, the reason why, for you, this has become an issue you want to advocate on, not just in our city, but in our province, the, the matter of vexatious use of 911 calls. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think for me, it started simply because I've heard of these recent cases, particularly in my neck of the woods. Um, I live in in the suburb of Barhaven in Ottawa, and um, there was a recent case of a young man who was um, profiled by a school trustee, um, and that made news. And then not too long after, there was this recent case with Netanwali Bashizi, and um, he was a young man who had 911 called on him simply for being on a bridge and this woman wanted him to get off the bridge and step aside for the purposes of uh, physical distancing, despite the fact that there was clearly enough space and she was only asking him to do this. Um, And for me, it really hit home for a couple of reasons. One, because um, I have black sons and I'm raising them in this neighborhood and in particularly my oldest one, he goes biking on those trails every day. And so all I could think about was, oh my goodness, that could have been my son in that exact same situation. And also because I would like to see some change happen because this has been going on for a long time. And I know firsthand it has because it's happened to my husband. And not just only like 10 years ago, this same thing has occurred to him where 911 was called and you know, police were sort of used to intimidate him in a, in a situation where he was completely innocent. So it's gone on for too long. And I think it's something that with the uprising, with the awareness caused by the tragic murder of George Floyd, we see this as an issue that needs to be needs to be dealt with. So I, I, I don't want to belabor it for you if it's, if it's hurtful history to go over, Tasia, but I remember when you told me the story of what happened to your husband, it really struck me as, you know, I wonder, I just wonder the degree to which many of our listeners, particularly many of our white listeners, mm-hmm. are, aware, are aware of this. And, and many people who will be listening to this are familiar with the Amy Cooper story. Uh, from New York. Uh, But would you mind getting into a little bit of detail so folks have an idea about what happened to you and how this impacted your husband personally? 
Yeah, not not a problem. Um, for my husband, it was a number of years ago. He and some friends of ours were heading to the movie theater, so it's the local cineplex at South Keys. And he was just minding his own business, pulling into a parking spot, and this young man came and cut him off. And so my husband pulled into another parking spot, and he's not shy. So he stepped out of the car and, you know, mentioned to the guy across the way and, and said, hey, didn't you notice I was pulling into that parking spot? And the guy looked my husband up and down and said, F you. And my wow. friends who were in the car um, started getting out and they kind of you know, realized what was happening. So one of our friends said to the guy, I'm sorry, what did you say? And then you could see that the gentleman realized there was more than one person in the car. It wasn't just my husband. And all of our friends happened to also be black men. And so his face changed. He kind of grabbed his girlfriend, ran inside the movie theater. And so... For my husband and friends, they like kind of laughed it off. They didn't think anything of it. They started to, you know, just think about popcorn and which movie they're going to watch. And they went to the theater, reminding their own business. And then at some point, a manager from this Netflix came over to him and said, you guys have to leave. And they were like, well, what? Why? And they're like, well, because that woman over there, who is the gentleman's girlfriend, they told her that, um, that she's fearing for her life. And that she felt threatened and that they were calling 911. And they're my friends and my husband were like, what are you talking about? We, we literally never said anything to her. Um, we only mentioned to the, to her boyfriend that they were, you know, that he cut us off with the parking spot, but that was about it. And they were trying to, you know, kind of plead their case to the manager and they weren't having it. So my friends were like, okay, let's just, let's just go. We don't want it to turn into this big thing. And by the time that they had left um, the movie theater, a cop car had already pulled up. And wow. Pop got out of the car, told my husband and our friends, you know, you need to put your hands up, get on the wall. Um, she was interrogating them, asking all these questions, frisking them, all these things. And they're like, they're trying to defend themselves. They're, they're complying, but they're defending us like we didn't do anything. This is like a misunderstanding. This woman, you know, kind of is misconstrued the situation. She's taking it too far. And so my husband was really trying to defend himself. And at some point, the officer was like, no, I need you to be quiet, stop talking. And at some point, he actually ended up having a foot on him and put into the back of the cop car. My goodness. While the the girl and the gentleman were standing outside and the manager, they were kind of just watching and observing the whole thing. And at some point, they kind of like decided to move on. And at that point, the cop came back to my husband and was like, okay, I'm going to let you go. And he, for him, it felt almost as if he, she was trying to show at like, the fact that you needed to teach him a lesson or try to make it clear that like, look, I've done my job. I like quote unquote punished them. And so she started taking him, him out of the car, told him like, I'm not going to arrest you. I'm not going to take you downtown. And the thing that stood out the most to me um, in this situation was that at the end, when she decided to let them go, she says to my husband and all her friends, you have to understand you guys look intimidating. And what? for, <laughs> for my husband and for my, our, all of our friends were like, what is it about a black man just living their everyday life that is perceived as being intimidating or threatening? It's the very presence of black skin is just perceived in this way. And that's so unacceptable. There's this bias that's underlining in our society that a black person is just instantly considered a threat. And that's what really kind of struck me with this whole situation and, and what the situation with Netwali has brought back up for myself and my family is that this is still going on. And it's been going on for far too long. Wow. 
Thank you for getting into that granular detail because it, it, that is shocking. Has yeah. there been any recompense? Did you file any official conduct complaint with the OPS, the Ottawa Police Service? No, and I think that was kind of what also motivated me to get into um, starting a petition was because for my husband, for a number of my especially black male friends, um, they don't they have these things happen to them all the time and they don't do anything about it because they're like, this is just what comes with being black. So they don't want to bother to try to file a case because then it becomes a, you know, a case of she said versus he said. And and for them, they're like, well, I'm always going to be perceived as being guilty in when it comes to myself against in this particular case, a white man. So for them, they're just like, this happens all the time. There's so many of my friends who have these situations, so many of my family members who have experienced this and, and to some degree, black women experience this as well. But we just sort of like, it's unfortunate. You kind of just accept like, yeah, this is what comes with being black. And that's what needs to change. And I want to see this especially change for my children so that they don't have to feel this way. They want to feel like in the case of like, you know, a little minor thing about a parking spot, you want to feel like if, if we were somebody else, if we didn't have this skin color, would 911 be called? No, it would just be a minor thing. This like story you tell somebody at the end of the day about this like jerk who cut you off at a parking spot, you know, but because when you're black, it gets escalated into police and 911. So let's take this conversation because you've dug into this about the provincial regulations around the use of 911. Um, when mm-hmm. you spoke earlier, you mentioned to me that other jurisdictions in the wake of the Amy Cooper public incident, uh, you know, have really started looking at this seriously, the vexatious use of, of 911 calls. And I know in one of the incidents you mentioned, the young man on the bridge, uh, in your neck of the woods, correct, in Barhaven? Yes. Okay. Uh, this was a situation uh, that our police chief, uh, Peter Slowly, and other police officials apologized for on social media. There, there mm-hmm. would appear to be some momentum for change. I'm going to give our listeners what the current penalties are for vexatious 911 calls and the fact there, there aren't, and what, what kind of disincentive you think would help signal to folks that you, know, you can't weaponize 911 in this way to discriminate against people? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's been pointed out that there is already some legislation around um, these kinds of misuse of 911. So, of course, in the criminal code, section 140, we've got, you know, public mischief. So if someone uses 911 or misleads a police officer or a peace officer, um, there is ramifications for that in our in our criminal code. But the problem is, is that often these cases are never pursued when it's in the case of racial discrimination or when it's clearly due to some sort of racial motivation. Mm-hmm. And that's why we want to see some sort of change or ramifications. We don't want to necessarily see like an increase in policing, but I think that if there was some sort of consequence, if someone was fined when it was clear that they were calling 911 and trying to use it to weaponize against a, a black or indigenous or person of color um, or simply to intimidate somebody, um, then I think people would think twice that, hey, right. if I use it in this in this way, I'm going to get fined. I'm, there's going to be some sort of penalty for it. And so I need to really rethink about why am I choosing to escalate this situation to 911. So I think that's what we're hoping to see. I and mean, that's what you started to see um, in the States with the Karen Act, with the Caution Against Racially Exploitive Non-Emergencies in San Francisco. They passed right. that because they recognize the fact that it's not 
there are current laws in place, but they're not specific to racial discrimination. And I think that's where we need to see some change. Okay. Well, what I can say just from our perspective in, in Ottawa Centre, Tasia, is we're absolutely willing to work with you to reach out across the aisle to make, make this happen as soon as possible. It is stunning to me how often this has happened in our city recently. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, it's and, really, and I, really unfortunate. And, and I have to tell you, that just to, again, to add a, an, another layer to our conversation, I've had uh, black and brown moms and dads approach me uh, since COVID since masks mm-hmm. have been made mandatory. And one gentleman, I'll never forget, he said to me, Joel, uh, I'm afraid to go get groceries with a mask on. I, I'm yeah. a tall black guy. And yeah. like, people find the mask that I can afford, this handkerchief, intimidating. So mm-hmm. what, what are we going to do? <laughs> How are we going to yeah. do this? I can't send my wife out to go get groceries all the time. You know, I, I, am, I was already, he told me, fearful for my daughter and my son yeah. going out to get groceries. Do you ever fear for yeah. that? And I said, no, admittedly, no, never. Not for, not for a second. Right? And he said, well, look, yeah. like, well, it, it, do you, does this occur to you too? I mean, we're branching a bit from the vexatious use of 911 calls and, and maybe borrowing from the conversation you were talking about, about the mm-hmm. moral panic around blackness, if that's the right way to put it. No, that's, it's a really valid point. It's something that's actually come up a lot um, amongst some of um, those in the community that we just don't, on a whole, people don't realize that with everything, with this whole situation with COVID-19, there's an intersectionality there that for Black, Indigenous, or people of color, there's Black, so on my side my cousin the other day he went out to a store and he was wearing like a red bandana that is usually associated with gang violence yeah and right. for yeah and for him he sent me a picture of being like oh i'm going to the grocery store look look you know what i'm wearing and i was like wow you know for my husband like you could never wear that going to the store and you would feel like oh my gosh i'm, I'm going to be perceived as being threatening or i'm going to be perceived as you know, um, coming in to rob the store when really just coming in for groceries. And so we had this really interesting conversation about how it's unfortunate that something that, you know, it seems so innocuous, something that a white person can do and they don't think anything of it. But for a black person, they have to question and think everything about what, you know, how they're carrying themselves, how they're dressed, you know, how, what words are they choosing to use in case they're being perceived as being threatening. I mean, with my oldest son, we have to always caution him of like, you know, if you're going around at nighttime, make sure you don't put the hood up on your hoodie. You know, you don't want to be perceived wow. as being, you know, threatening in any which way, even though he lives in this neighborhood, he's grown up here his whole life, he's never gotten in trouble, but I'm just always concerned about how he's going to be perceived. So yeah, it's a major issue for sure. Well, Teja, I want to thank you for, for your leadership and, and bringing this forward. And I know you're pursuing this with a number of political offices and I'm glad you are. Uh, so for folks who are listening to this who want to support the work you're doing, how can they support you? Absolutely. Um, I think that we've had some really great success with the with the petition. So we started the petition on change.org. If you look up and the weaponization of 911 against um, Black, Indigenous, people of color in Ottawa, you will find the petition, sign it, join on, and you can follow along of, you know, what success we're getting here with uh, with our politicians. And um, that's really helped so much. It's just simply getting the numbers up so that it's clear to all of our politicians that this is an important issue. And I really want to thank 
um, politicians like yourself who are being like you've made it clear that this is an important issue and that you've kind of joined on and and shown your lending your support because this is the only way that it's going to change. We really need those who are leaders in our communities like yourself to take up the cause with us and that you know we need the allies to be able to make these great changes. Well, it's it's been a pleasure, and and I just want you to keep us on a short leash, though. Don't let us don't let us delay and get away with kicking the can down the road, even though it's summertime. Um, but right. thank you so much for your for your leadership, and let's stay in touch, okay? And again, I just invite listeners to head to change.org, sign that uh, petition that Tage mentioned, and get involved. If you're listening to this from another city, your MPP, your MP, your counselor needs to know about this. Thank you so much, Tage. Thank you so much for having me. This is Joel Harden. You've been listening to Troublemaker Radio. I want to thank Tasia Brown for her organizing and want to invite all listeners to sign the petition she has started, which is available at change.org, called End the Weaponization of 911 Against BIPOC in Ottawa. If you go to change.org and you type that in, you will see that 16,500 people have signed that petition against the vexatious use of 911 against people of color and indigenous people. And we need you to sign it too. We need you to share it with friends. We want to get to 25,000 people and we want to change the law so this doesn't happen to anybody else. We need your help. Next, our conversation about racism is going to change over to a related topic. We're going to talk about the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center and I'm going to take you right to the ground of a protest that happened in front of the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center, which is in the east end of our city on Innes Road, on July 24th, very recently, you're going to hear from Sage Pickety. Sage Pickety is the lead singer of the Ottawa River Singers, one of the amazing Indigenous drumming groups that is often present at many progressive events in town as we try to start off our, start off our work for justice in a good way. Sage is going to offer you and all of us a personal reflection about the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center, and I want you to listen to him and think about the implications of how we currently treat people who are incarcerated. The Ottawa Carlton Detention Center, 60% of the folks who are imprisoned there are there on remand. They're there awaiting their day in court. People like me, affluent white people like me, if we are ever charged of a crime, we can sit in our homes and wait for our day in court. People who are poor, who are marginalized, who are disproportionately indigenous, brown or other people of color, people with mental illness, they sit and wait at the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center and endure the heinous conditions that you will hear about by an organizer who takes the mic after Sage. We've had two hunger strikes involving as many as 70 prisoners at the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center. That hellhole has to change and we need your help. We need you to listen to people on the ground and that's what we're going to do next. Good morning, good afternoon, uh... Uh, my name is Sage Pickety, and uh, I'm a lead singer for Ottawa River Singers. So you can check us out We're, uh, on Facebook. Uh, we have our own page. I just wanted to say, to you, I just wanted to mention, I actually have a younger brother that's in there right now. Uh, he's, uh, he's only 20, uh, 22, 23 years old. And they're trying to sentence him for 25 to life for a murder that he didn't do. Yeah, so basically, uh, if they're charging them over pure racism, they, they see it as getting two bad guys off the street when uh, when they have all the evidence they need. 
to, to get that one guy that actually did it. You know what I mean? So they're putting my brother away for fucking no reason. Excuse my French. Yeah. But I guess I also, I just wanted to add that a lot of times, uh, our, our, our people, First Nations, indigenous people, a long time ago, we never had uh, punishment or anything like that. So we never had jail systems, uh, we never had jail cells, or never put anyone in the corner. Right, we didn't know what punishment was, you know what I mean? To us, punishment was wrong. Punishment uh, against someone that, that, that even did something wrong is wrong, you know what I mean? Two wrongs don't make it right. Yeah. So a long time ago, what our people used to do is we used to take that person that uh, say they did something wrong, like even something terrible, you know what I mean? They would take that person and they would all have a community sit down with that person and instead of scolding them for uh, for that problem that he did, instead of making them feel bad for that for that problem, they try to find out why. Why did he do that? What caused him to do that in the first place? So it, it may take it may take days, it may take hours, it may take minutes. You know what I mean? To, to pinpoint what the actual problem is, whether it's past traumas or. You know what I mean? And they deal with it. Yeah, and, and they, they help this this man recover from from that bad thing he's done. They help him uh, rejuvenate back into the community, you know what I mean? And they, they give him that chance to regain everyone's trust and his trust in the community as well. And I, I, I don't know what made me want to say that. I just wanted to add that into this. And uh, also, I just wanted to say thank you for having me.
wonderful. Um, so thank you, thank you so much uh, for uh, this, you know, opening song for sharing space with us. We have to remember that this jail that we are gathered in front is on the unceded and unsurrendered Algonquin territory. This is stolen land. And they steal the land and afterwards they use it to lock people up that they stole the lands from. The woman who were there, a Métis woman and another indigenous woman who was just talking to on the phone right now, they're telling me that they are punishing them just because they're being loud. Isn't that patriarchy? Telling a woman that they're loud? Telling a woman and trying to shut them up? So that's why we gathered here today. We gathered to show our solidarity because we are the ones who are going to keep each other safe from colonialism, from racism, from barbaric and violent white supremacy, and from all the oppressions that are experienced by some of the most vulnerable or made vulnerable members of our community by these systems of oppression. We will not shut up until the demands of the hunger strikers who are over 70 people in there, not eating, not drinking sometimes, not taking their medication for very serious illnesses. This is a shame. Shame on OCDC for this. Shame. 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 They're not only subjecting them to unfair and unjust treatment within the institution, but the institution itself is the enforcer and the reproducer and the producer of oppression. We're not here to make the jail a better or to ask to make the jail a better place because we can't make jails better places. Jails are, 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 are very violent environments that are inherent, sorry, that jails are inherently violent. We should do away with them all together. In September 1918, when the court was about to sentence him to his jail sentence for opposing World War I, the 63-year-old Debs fixed his eyes upon the presiding judge and spoke his philosophy of life. Your Honor, Years ago, I recognized my kinship with all living things, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then, and I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. This is Joel Harden, and you've been listening to Troublemaker Radio. The words you just heard, segueing from the remarks of Sage Piketty and one of the major organizers of the OCDC protest, was of Eugene Debs, a socialist politician at the turn of the 20th century who's responsible in many respects for laying the groundwork of what we currently see happening in the United States in the amazing campaigns of Bernie Sanders, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and so many others who are defying political conventions and raising the questions that need to be raised. Eugene Debs was absolutely never vague about whose side he was on.
about the need to decarcerate our society, about the need to see the humanity in everyone. So it's fitting that we segue from the conversations we heard in Ottawa Centre with a major figure of the global left, Eugene Debs, who can help us understand why we must not be colorblind. I hope you heard from the grassroots here in Ottawa, enough to inspire you to continue the uprising that is going on around the world, demanded by protesters who have had enough of white supremacy, who have had enough of the structural racism that permeates in our society. I want to end this particular discussion of racism in this episode by reflecting on something that happened recently. Recently, where I work in the city of Toronto, near the Ontario legislature, a number of Black Lives Matter protesters once again grabbed us by our collective lapels to make us pay attention to the way in which our society subtly and overtly endorses bigotry and racism. Recently, Black Lives Matter protesters marched around the Ontario legislature and put washable pink paint on many of the statues of colonial bigots who ring the legislature. I'm talking about John A. Macdonald, someone who is an open racist, who advocated for the gradual elimination of Indigenous peoples, the clearing of the plains, as he put it. I'm talking about Egerton Ryerson, often famously remembered as a newspaper publisher and the founder of modern public schools. He was also the founder, Egerton Ryerson was, of the residential school system, a genocidal project from which our country has yet to truly reckon and recover. So the Black Lives Matter protesters decided to shock us, disturb us, and the response from police was absolutely predictable. Quickly mobilized, three Black Lives Matter protesters were picked up, picked up and apparently driven around in a squad car for a good amount of time, a few hours before their lawyers were even allowed to talk to them. I am so proud of my colleagues, members of provincial parliament in downtown Toronto, who went to the police station with legal counsel and demanded those protesters have a hearing with their legal counsel. And the way in which the Toronto police played dumb in the face of those demands was sickening. And it's reminding us all of what we're up against. What we are willing to defend. Statues of racists ringing the Ontario legislature. It's a sad commentary about the distance we yet need to move. I want us to think a little bit about the kind of society we may have in 20 years if, inspired by this moment of Black Lives Matter, the march against white supremacy around the world, we think of what might be ringing the Ontario legislature in 20 years. Will it be statues of bigots and racists? Or will it be statues reminding us of the values that are important to build a society of inclusion? to build a society where everybody is given an equal opportunity to be themselves and to succeed, of solidarity. That's what I think matters. And that's really what we're talking about in refusing to be colorblind. What it means, particularly for white people, is acknowledging the burden we have to reckon with the legacy and the ever-present reality of racism, to name it, to commit to work against it, and to dismantle its aspects. So I look forward to working with everybody listening on this podcast, with continuing to be inspired 
by protesters who will compel us to pay attention. It's no longer optional. Thank goodness for that. I want to thank the Ottawa River Singers and particularly Sage Pickety for inspiring us with their music in this episode. I want to thank Sage in particular for his courage, for the way in which the music that they present to us reminds us of the roots of this society in which we live and where we ought to go. I want to thank Kieran Lebossier, who is an incredible artist himself in designing these podcasts. Thank you, Kieran. And I want to segue our attention to where we're headed next in this podcast. We're going to be talking about childcare. We're going to be talking about the kind of start kids need to have a successful lot in life. On a personal level, I have to say, when I used to teach part-time at Carleton University, both of our children went to the nonprofit unionized childcare center based at Carleton University. And that childcare center, the Colonel By Childcare Center, filled with incredible staff, were responsible for some of the most memorable moments I can recall of seeing our kids interacting with other kids, experiencing themselves, feeling loved, feeling supported when they were in difficult duress. And I'm told it happened, as it does. Every kid needs that start. Every kid deserves that start. And there are other places, even in the country we currently live in, Canada, that are making much better work. I look across the river to the province of Quebec with its provincial national childcare program. It's got its flaws, but my goodness, is it a lot better than the mortgages so many parents are currently paying for childcare. For the fear in the hearts of many parents right now, right this very moment when they are desperate hunting for spaces. We can't have a society like this. And we can't have a society in which the caring work, the educational work devoted in that childcare is valued so little. We're going to be talking to people on the front lines. We're going to be talking to people who deliver the childcare. We're going to be talking to people advocating for the childcare. And we're going to be recognizing that this moment, this COVID-19 moment, this collective epiphany we've been having about what matters, this is our chance to also make a great leap forward on childcare, to demand it. Because otherwise, we will not be giving every child the start they deserve in life. And there could be no greater injustice, I think, than that. So tune in to the next episode of Troublemaker Radio to find out more about childcare from those fighting for it on the ground. Thank you so much for listening to this episode about refusing to be colorblind. And remember, folks, work hard, be kind, and make good trouble.